Section 14 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Chapter 4. Then followed four years of hard work. In the neighborhood, Gervaise and Coupeau had the reputation of being a happy couple, living in retirement without quarrels, and taking a short walk regularly every Sunday in the direction of Saint Juan. The wife worked twelve hours a day at Madame Fossonier's, and still found means to keep their lodging as clean and bright as a new coined sou, and to prepare the meals for all her little family morning and evening. The husband never got drunk, brought his wages home every fortnight, and smoked a pipe at his window in the evening, to get a breath of fresh air before going to bed. They were frequently alluded to on account of their nice, pleasant ways, and as between them they earned close upon nine francs a day, it was reckoned they were able to put by a good deal of money. However, during their first months together they had to struggle hard to get by. Their wedding had left them owing two hundred francs. Also, they detested the Hotel Boncourt, as they didn't like the other occupants. Their dream was to have a home of their own, with their own furniture. They were always figuring out how much they would need, and decided three hundred and fifty francs at least, in order to be able to buy little items that came up later. They were in despair at ever being able to collect such a large sum, when a lucky chance came their way. An old gentleman at Plassin offered to take the older boy, Claude, and send him to an academy down there. The old man, who loved art, had previously been much impressed by Claude's sketches. Claude had already begun to cost them quite a bit, and now with only Etienne to support, they were able to accumulate the money in little over seven months. One day they were finally able to buy their own furniture from a second-hand dealer on Rue Belhomme. Their hearts filled with happiness, they celebrated by walking home along the exterior boulevards. They had purchased a bed, a night-table, a chest of drawers with a marble top, a wardrobe, a round table covered with oilcloth, and six chairs. All were of dark mahogany. They also brought blankets, linen, and kitchen utensils that were scarcely used. It meant settling down and giving themselves a status in life as property owners, as persons to be respected. For two months past they had been busy seeking some new apartments. At first they wanted above everything to hire these in the big house of the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, but there was not a single room to let there, so they had to relinquish their old dream. To tell the truth, Gervaise was rather glad in her heart. The neighborhood of the Loreleur, almost door to door, frightened her immensely. Then they looked about elsewhere. Coupeau, very properly, did not wish to be far from Madame Fossonier's, so that Gervaise could easily run home at any hour of the day. And at length they met with exactly what suited them, a large room with a small closet and a kitchen in the Rue Neuve de la Goutte d'Or, almost opposite the laundresses. This was a small two-story building, with a very steep staircase. There were two apartments on the second floor, one to the left, the other to the right. The ground floor was occupied by a man who rented out carriages, which filled the sheds in the large stable-yard by the street. Gervaise was delighted with this, as it made her feel she was back in a country town.
With no close neighbors, there would be no gossip to worry about in this little corner. It reminded her of a small lane outside the ramparts of Plassin. She could even see her own window while ironing at the laundry by just tilting her head to the side. They took possession of their new abode at the April quarter. Gervaise was then eight months advanced, but she showed great courage, saying with a laugh that the baby helped her as she worked. She felt its influence growing within her and giving her strength. Ah, oh, well, she just laughed at Coupeau whenever he wanted her to lie down and rest herself. She would take to her bed when the labor pains came. That would be quite soon enough, as with another mouth to feed, they would have to work harder than ever. She made their new place bright and shiny before helping her husband install the furniture. She loved the furniture, polishing it and becoming almost heartbroken at the slightest scratch. Any time she knocked into the furniture while cleaning, she would stop with a sudden shock, as though she had hurt herself. The chest of drawers was especially dear to her. She thought it handsome, sturdy, and most respectable-looking. The dream that she hadn't dared to mention was to get a clock and put it right in the middle of the marble top. It would make a splendid effect. She probably would have bought one right away except for the expected baby. The couple were thoroughly enchanted with their new home. Vetienne's bed occupied the small closet where there was still room to put another child's crib. The kitchen was a very tiny affair and as dark as night, but by leaving the door wide open one could just manage to see. Besides, Gervaise had not to cook meals for thirty people. All she wanted was room to make her soup. As for the large room, it was their pride. The first thing in the morning they drew the curtains of the alcove, white calico curtains, and the room was thus transformed into a dining room, with a table in the centre and the wardrobe and chest of drawers facing each other. They stopped up the chimneys, since it burned as much as fifteen sous of coal a day. A small cast-iron stove on the marble hearth gave them enough warmth on cold days for only seven sous. Coupeau had also done his best to decorate the walls. There was a large engraving showing a Marshal of France on horseback with a baton in his hand. Family photographs were arranged in two rows on top of the chest of drawers, on each side of an old holy water basin in which they kept matches. Busts of Pascal and Baranger were on top of the wardrobe. It was really a handsome room. Guess how much we pay here? Gervaise would ask of every visitor she had. And whenever they guessed too high a sum, she, triumphed and delighted at being so well suited for such a little money, cried, One hundred and fifty francs, not a sou more. Isn't it almost like having it for nothing? The street, Rue Neuve de la Goutte d'Or, played an important part in their contentment. Gervaise's whole life was there, as she travelled back and forth endlessly between her home and Madame Fossonier's laundry. Coupeau now went down every evening and stood on the doorstep to smoke his pipe. The poorly paved street rose steeply and had no sidewalks. Towards Rue de la Goutte d'Or there was some gloomy shops with dirty windows. There were shoemakers, coopers, a run-down grocery, and a bankrupt café, whose closed shutters were covered with posters. In the opposite direction, towards Paris, four-story buildings blocked the sky. Their ground-floor shops were all occupied by laundries, with one exception, a green-painted storefront typical of a small-town hairdresser. Its shop windows were full of variously colored flasks, 
It lighted up this drab corner with the gay brightness of its copper bowls, which were always shining. The most pleasant part of the street was in between, where the buildings were fewer and lower, letting in more sunlight. The carriage sheds, the plant which manufactured soda water, and the wash house opposite made a wide expanse of quietness. The muffled voices of the washerwomen and the rhythmic puffing of the steam engines seemed to deepen the almost religious silence. Open fields and narrow lanes vanishing between dark walls gave it the air of a country village. Coupeau, always amused by the infrequent pedestrians having to jump over the continuous streams of soapy water, said it reminded him of a country town where his uncle had taken him when he was five years old. Gervaise's greatest joy was a tree growing in the courtyard to the left of their window, an acacia that had stretched out a single branch, and yet with its meagre foliage lent charm to the entire street. It was on the last day of April that Gervaise was confined. The pains came on in the afternoon towards four o'clock, as she was ironing a pair of curtains at Madame Fossonier's. She would not go home at once, but remained there wriggling about on a chair and continuing her ironing every time the pain allowed her to do so. The curtains were wanted quickly, and she obstinately made a point of finishing them. Besides, perhaps, after all, it was only a colic. It would never do to be frightened by a bit of a stomach-ache. But, as she was talking of starting on some shirts, she became quite pale. She was obliged to leave the workshop and cross the street doubled in two, holding on to the walls. One of the workwomen offered to accompany her. She declined, but begged her to go instead for the midwife close by, in the Rue de la Chabonniere. This was only a false alarm. There was no need to make a fuss. She would be like that, no doubt, all through the night. It was not going to prevent her getting Coupeau's dinner ready as soon as she was indoors. Then she perhaps might lie down on the bed a little, but without undressing. On the staircase she was seized with such a violent pain that she was obliged to sit down on one of the stairs, and she pressed her two fists against her mouth to prevent herself from crying out for she would have been ashamed to have been found there by any man had one come up. The pain passed away. She was able to open her door, feeling relieved and thinking that she had decidedly been mistaken. That evening she was going to make a stew with some neck chops. All went well while she peeled the potatoes. The chops were cooking in a saucepan when the pains returned. She mixed the gravy as she stamped about in front of the stove, almost blinded with her tears. If she was going to give birth, there was no reason why Coupeau should be kept without his dinner. At length the stew began to simmer on a fire covered with cinders. She went into the other room, and thought that she would have time to lay the cloth at one end of the table. But she was obliged to put down the bottle of wine very quickly. She no longer had strength to reach the bed. She fell prostrate. She had more pains on a mat on the floor. When the midwife arrived a quarter of an hour later, she found mother and baby lying there on the floor. The zinc worker was still employed at the hospital. Gervaise would not have him disturbed. When he came home at seven o'clock, he found her in bed, well covered up, looking very pale on the pillow, and the child crying, swathed in a shawl at its mother's feet. "'Ah, oh, my poor wife!' said Coupeau, kissing Gervaise. "'And I was joking only an hour ago whilst you were crying with pain.' I say, you don't make much fuss about it. The time to sneeze, and it's all over. She smiled faintly, then she murmured, 
It's a girl. Right, the zinc worker replied, joking so as to enliven her. I ordered a girl. Well, now I've got what I wanted. You do everything I wish. And, taking the child up in his arms, he continued, Let's have a look at you, miss. Oh, you've got a very black little mug. It'll get white and never fear. You must be good, never run about the streets, and grow up sensible like your papa and mamma. Gervaise looked at her daughter very seriously with wide-open eyes, slowly overshadowed with sadness, for she would rather have had a boy. Boys can take care of themselves and don't have to run such risks on the streets of Paris as girls do. The midwife took the infant from Coupeau. She forbade Gervaise to do any talking. It was bad enough there was so much noise around her. Then the zinc worker said that he must tell the news to Mother Coupeau and the Loreleur, but he was dying with hunger. He must first of all have his dinner. It was a great worry to the invalid to see him have to wait on himself, run to the kitchen for the stew, eat it out of a soup plate, and not be able to find the bread. In spite of being told not to do so, she bewailed her condition and fidgeted about in her bed. It was stupid of her not to have managed to set the cloth. The pains had laid her on her back like a blow from a bludgeon. A poor old man would not think it kind of her to be nursing herself up there whilst he was dining so badly. At least were the potatoes cooked enough? She no longer remembered whether she had put salt in them. End of the first part of chapter 4 Recording by David Lazarus